You are listening to Sheep Might Fly, a podcast of serialised fiction written and read by Tansy Rayner Roberts. Uh, we are between serials. Musketeer Space is done, and next week I will be launching the brand new story of Knives and Night Blooms. Uh, and for now, yeah, with no fiction this week, I'm going to answer some questions for you. I am speaking from my new, improved, renovated library. Uh, This has been an ongoing project over the whole summer. And in my head, it's been an ongoing project for a few years. Uh, My library had definitely turned into the box room. Last summer, it turned into the room where we put everything so we can renovate the bedrooms. Uh, It had got a bit grim in here. So now I have I have my, my old armchair, my brand new sofa bed. It's missing a leg. Uh, I spent some time on customer support yesterday. I need to discover that their system for replacing, you know, the missing leg, which is like the missing Lego piece if you order a, a set, right? But their system involves sending the whole box again. You taking out what you want and then sending it back. I did point out that for a leg, that was a bit of a system. The lady then looked at her computer and said, oh, you're in Tasmania. And now she's going to see what she can do, because apparently our closest depot for this furniture is Melbourne. So, yeah, that's exciting. Anyway, the sofa bed is in one piece. It looks lovely. We're just being a bit gentle about sitting on it because of that whole missing leg business. Um, I have my table, which once I figured out exactly how I wanted the library to look, I had a type of, I decided I didn't want a desk. I've been writing at a kitchen table for the last 20 years. I didn't want to stop now. But the table I had in mind was a really specific, very solid, squat, small, square kitchen table. And this is because I remembered a table like that when I was a teenager exactly what I wanted I was going to go up shopping my mother said well you're dreaming aren't you you're not going to find that on the other hand I still have the original in my garage so yeah thank goodness for hoarding parents uh, who pass their hoarding tendencies onto their children um yeah thank goodness my mother hasn't left the country in the last 20 years or she would have sold it three times over so I got the table um uh, a friend brought it to me all the way from Signet. My husband sanded it and and varnished it, but just a little bit, just to like protect the highly distressed patina. This is a table that has been uh, loved, scratched, splashed with paint and ink, gouged over the years, and it looks it. It's It's been thoroughly distressed and antiqued, and I love it so. It just feels right having it here at the window of my library. Uh, It's big enough that I could do craft projects. It's small enough, hopefully, that I won't pile up huge heaps of crap all over it. That's my plan, and I'm sticking to it. My bookshelves are so much tidier than they've been in 15 years, maybe. I have got rid of a lot of books over the last year. That's been a big project. Uh, shout out to uh, Liz for her lovely little street library specialising in YA and children's fiction 
and to my friend Jack, who, oh my God, took about 15 boxes of books from me and said, if they won't go to the street library, I'll just put them in my garage or I'll give them to the Lions Club. And it's just, it's one of the nicest things that somebody's done for me in a long time. <laughs> I was not looking forward to finding homes for those individual 15 boxes of books. I would like to point out that if people come to my house, they will not be able to see where the 15 boxes of books came from because it looks like I have slightly more than the correct amount of books for the amount of bookshelves I have and I have a lot of bookshelves so I'm looking at I don't even know I know that there were boxes I know there were heaps on the floor I know that there were double stacked books but there's still double stacked books like not all my shelves are pristine so yeah anyway it's lovely I can see the books that I love um it's made me fall in love with them all over again I organized my 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 comic book trades which was very exciting for me things have been dusted it's still a bit shabby around the corners there are still a few corners now I look at and go well I haven't tidied that yet have I it's really not everyone who comes into my library is like oh it looks fabulous but what about that pile on top of the filing cabinet I'm getting to it anyway I haven't been putting up pictures because it's not finished yet I am waiting for my lovely new curtains I have hideous old curtains that I can't take down because otherwise the the scorching late summer sun of Tasmania would destroy me and my books like the little vampires we are. Uh, but as soon as the new curtains come, I'll be taking so many pictures for Instagram. Um, yeah, so I'm happy. And look, I've got a space to podcast, which is really nice. I have been camping for months, especially once I got rid of the dying old card table that was trying to stab me um I didn't have anywhere to podcast in the library which is my door it's my door closing room it's always been my door closing room so instead I've been podcasting like in the living room really early in the morning before the kids get up <laughs> they're teenagers it's not a short window of time but still this this is really nice I could rant about my library all day how long have I been talking all right, I have questions from some of my patrons. Um, and, yeah, so I'm going to answer those. And, yeah, I, I'd like to do one of these maybe between each of the serials because it's nice to have a chance to talk to you all. And, yeah, apparently I have no problem just talking away in front of a microphone by myself alone in a room full of books. Who knew? Okay, so Kel has a couple of questions for me. Uh, first they ask, do you plot or plan out your works much before writing? If you are a plotter, what is your planning process? Well, that's a whole can of worms, isn't it? I don't identify as a plotter or as a pantser. Uh, I quite liked the gardener and architect metaphors, but I am the world's worst gardener in real life. Definitely not an architect. So I do plan, um, but how I plan is mostly making lists. It's not like I don't follow techniques. I don't expand on things. I take notes. Um, I have so many projects that I want to be working on all the time. 
So sometimes when I come to actually properly start on a, a new book or a new work, there might be a couple of chapters scribbled out, which I wrote years ago. There might be a bit of an idea of a plot, which I won't have written down. My most effective way of planning a novel has always been, and it feels embarrassing to admit, but basically writing a list of chapter headings. Sometimes those chapter headings represent actual plot twists that I have in mind, and sometimes they're just chapter headings, but they serve as prompts that keep me spiralling forward into the story. Uh, I'm a big fan of chapter headings. I wrote Liquid Gold that way, which is my second ever novel. It's the first novel I ever wrote under pressure. So I'd written a bunch of novels that were mostly messy and terrible in my teen years. I wrote Splash Dance Silver over a couple of years, um, won a prize, got published. Part of the getting published was they wanted the second book delivered within six months. And, well, within six months of, yeah, signing. And, yeah, that was, that was the first time I've ever written, written a contract. And it was an insanely complicated book for a book that had to be written within six months and it was the first book I'd ever written to contract. It involved time travel. Uh, it had two alternating point of view groups of characters, which were mainly point of view characters. Um, I killed off my heroine in the first chapter. No, it was, it was great. I'm still very fond of that book. Um, it's also the one that I wrote while I was doing a translating Latin course on the Aeneid, which shows like it just shows that I was deeply immersed in Virgil while writing this fluffy comic fantasy um if you've read it you'll know what I'm talking about it's just full of weird Aeneid references um lots of Latin so yeah what I ended up doing was I remember writing those chapter headings um for the last probably two-thirds of the book saying this, 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 this. And so in my head, yeah, there were prompts. Sometimes there were elements, story elements that I knew what I wanted to have happen. I had bits and pieces. So it's a way of sorting the chaos in my brain. I can't plan too closely. Um, I always said the one time I did, the first time I ever really, really planned a novel was going back as well to the Mocklaw years. Um, so my publisher had read the third book that I supplied for my contract and they hated it, which looking back is fair enough. It was a mess. Uh, the reason they hated it was because it was not, it, it didn't have the same main characters as the first two books. Because in my head, I was writing the Discworld, right? This was my big series I was going to write lots of books set in this one world. All of them were going to be standalones, um, you know, and that was all fine. And I'd just write it forever, which looking back seemed like a really depressing future to set for myself. But there we go. That was what I wanted. Uh, the first two books, you know, Pratchett had done it. Anyway, um, the publishing world had moved on and they were very much not interested in a third book in a trilogy. To point out, I was not aware I was writing a trilogy. The publisher had kind of decided because it was the late 90s and that was what you did. Um, they wanted a 
they were like, well, this isn't the third book in a trilogy. And I'm like, well, I know it's not a third book in a trilogy. Anyway, I had an agent at the time who was not happy with the idea of me writing another book that she had not sold to a publisher. Um, when I'd already written a book to basically fulfill the contract, uh, I had a different book I needed to write for a grant, which ended up being the first Livia Day book, but it took a few years to get there. So it was in a bit of a quandary, and I was staying with friends, but in my head, I did come up with the perfect third book to make that a trilogy, and I planned it out in quite minute detail. And then I didn't write it. And for many years, that in my head told me I shouldn't plan books. <laughs> because if you plan them out to every detail, then you know how they end. And then there's no real incentive to finish. And in that case, there was no incentive to finish for many reasons. I did go back and write that book. Eventually, it was one of the earlier books that I I published it as a blog serial. Uh, the book was Ink Black Magic. It was later published by Fablecroft, who were my second life small press publisher, who republished the, who heartlessly bullied me into republishing the Mocklaw books. Um, love you to honey. Uh, and then when she closed up shop a few years ago, I took over the publishing of them myself. But anyway, so I wrote Ink Black Magic to this outline that I'd written quite in detail, at least five Years earlier, maybe 10. I haven't looked up the timeline. What is time? Um, yeah, so it proved to be a very useful thing, especially if you are writing a book to serial. It's a really good idea to have a plan. This was something I discovered years later when doing Musketeer Space. I'm like, well, if I'm going to write a, 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 a serial, I need to have a structure. I need to know what's happening next. I can't be wondering about that. In that case, I just stole it from the original book, The Three Musketeers, and that worked fine. Yeah, um, I don't plot well, but my brain does a lot of plotting for me. <clears throat> so these days, I just really try to keep up and make notes when I'm thinking of things, because I am often thinking of books that I want to write, and I'm not going to have time to write them yet. Uh, but the list of chapter headings is a solid thing that still works for me. Um, I don't always do it that way. Like with the recent um, Teacup Magic books, sometimes I absolutely, I plot it out, have an idea for all things that have not come up with the titles. Uh, I think with the Frost Fair, I absolutely had the titles laid down with Spellcracker's Honeymoon. I had the titles laid down. I didn't so much with... Um, have Spirit or Duchess, which is the new one which patron people have already read and other readers will get to read it in June. Largely because I came up with the idea very early on that this was, as a book, uh, I was going to use themes for the chapter headings and they were all to do with weather. So phrases like Storm and Ecky Teacup. For instance, obviously that was where I started. They don't all involve teacups. Um, but yeah, so I had like weather related because the Duke and Duchess of Storms. So I had all these weather related things as the titles. Of course, I ran out halfway through, had to go searching online for quotes about the weather, phrases about the weather, um, you know, cliched lines about 
storms, rain, etc. Um, yeah. I was basically rewriting the titles quite a lot as I went over and over with that book. I didn't have really set ones. And honestly, I think that's why that book ended up being 10,000 words longer than it I expected it to be. Like, it's the length that the story needed to be. That's fine. Um, it's nearly a novel. Um, but I didn't have a comprehensive. I have worked out. I know how long my chapters fall. There's a certain range with it. So even when I write long by accident, uh, my chapters don't go longer than 3,000 words, which is too long for a chapter. But I, but they always have to be at least 1,500. Otherwise, it doesn't feel like a chapter. And because of that, if I plan <clears throat> 10 chapter headings, I have a novella. I can go up to 12 or 13 and it's still a novella. But when there's 20, it's a novel. And that's actually how more and more I've been planning out the uh, the length of my books. I want them to be novellas mostly. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so that's where I'm at. Planning is chaos. Lists help. Okay, Kel also asks me, what inspired you to write Belladonna You? There are many layers to this question. Uh, the first spark was very clearly, it was Harry Potter, obviously. Uh, specifically, it was, you know, the huge, huge body of Harry Potter fanfic that I just inhaled during uh, the mid-2000s. So the uh, mid to late 2000s, basically the first three or four years of my eldest child's life, uh, I was just, yeah, I was staring into space. I was reading young adult fiction. I was reading Harry Potter fiction, fanfic, and that was that was where I was at. One of the tropes I always found really interesting, I mean, the thing that still fascinates me about Harry Potter fan fiction is how huge it was as a phenomenon, like just how much of it there is compared to other fandoms. And I it, it got me thinking with my critical brain, which was still around even though I had a toddler, about what properties do inspire huge amounts of fan devotion they have to have it something in them that fans love obviously but they also have to have gaps and flaws and lacking aspects that fans want to uh, fulfill or fix um, whether it's characters that are treated badly whether it's chunks of world building that don't get covered there's always something in there that fans are just like, I can fix you. Um, or, or even just, you know, characters alluded to but never given enough page time, which explains the whole massive obsession with the Marauders. I am, I would like to point out now, very much a non, um, I, I am very much a... Um, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. Not a fan of J.K. Rowling. I'm not a fan of anything that has come out of her mouth in the last, I don't know, we had a decade now. It's all quite devastating. But I can't deny the fact that there was a huge 
part of my life when Harry Potter to some extent, but particularly Harry Potter fandom and fanfic. Like, that's a big chunk of my cultural stash. There's no unpacking that. Anyway, what I was going to say is one of the things I found a subset of of Potterfic, which I found really interesting. And I've got to say my interest in this waned around the time, you know, after the last book came out when Rowling started kind of filling in all the world building gaps and telling us all this stuff that wasn't in the books. That was when I checked out. But fans trying to explain the gaps from the books, I was fascinated by. And one of those things was university. See, I am getting to my point. So the thing about the, is the fact that there was no, there didn't seem to be in the books any mention of, discussion of, or plan for further education. It finished after year seven. And then everybody, even the super, super, I don't even want to say smart kids, but the super academic kids were funneled directly into the workplace. Now, as somebody who spent a lot of their life in uh, postgraduate education and was doing so at, at the same time as inhaling a lot of this, that was really interesting to me. Now, obviously, since Rowling did like mention all her university sort of things, though, again, I'm pretty sure there wasn't one in England. They They maybe had the other magical schools, but... Yeah, anyway. Um, or was it just she mentioned magical schools and other places? Anyway, th this idea of no university was really weird to me. Um, particularly, I just... Like, even if you're not a fan of Hermione and you recognise that this is a character who, let's face it, massively stuffed up her final year of school, how do you not... Like, how do you not see that kid going to university um, and, and fandom agreed. Like fandom was really big on, we need to find solutions for this university thing. If only so we can write um, hilarious university stories. Um, so whether it was the magical kids going off to, you know, human to, to muggle university um, or whatever, going to America, you got to have some way to get anyway. So that was, that was a spark. That was something that was in my head. That was a trope that I enjoyed. It was a very long-winded way to say it. It was a little trope that was in the back of my head. <clears throat> I've always liked magical university stories. Uh, when I was very young, um, which is to say before I went to university, as a teenager, I read Pamela Dean's Tamlin, which is one, still one of my favourite books of all time. Uh, it is a book about going to university and falling in love with books and having intellectual space to... Um, think about books in a critical way and to learn about Shakespeare and learn about poetry and it's just there's autumn leaves crunching underfoot and it's just so freaking dreamy and there are boys who may or may not be immortal uh, there are fairies that don't turn up until very late in, or at least they're there but like you know the actual magical aspects don't turn up until really late in the book which I know massively frustrates people who come to it for the first time but it's it's one of my all-time favorites I love it in fact magical university is always something I've been interested in and there's never been enough of it in in fantasy fiction generally uh Dinah Wynne Jones 
uh, did with her Durkham books. I think they, they had a bit of a university feel. Obviously, there's Unseen University, which is a very cynical take on what university is for from the point of the elderly professors. Uh, it's got a very gobbingasty kind of we have been here forever and it's all about the big meals kind of feel about it. But anyway, I've always loved magical university stories um, and in fact university stories generally. It's a real it's it's why it's really interesting to me that the new adult subgenre never really took off uh, except with romance and erotica, but it never took off like in the way that young adult did because university is just such an interesting liminal space. Um, the characters are just that bit older and more grown up than high school, um, but they're still in that space before decisions have to be made. And there's a really good story space there. So I was always going to write something about university at some point. Having said that, I had already written a university book. Uh, Ink Black Magic is my university book, which I wrote and planned first. Uh, it has point of view characters of the weary professors and the uh, the jumped up young students, and I'm very fond of it. But still, um, the other thing that I had in my head, because I read a lot of young adult fiction, um, I just in over a few years I just inhaled huge amounts of it. So again, it's there in my cultural stash. The thing about university stories is that. Australian university experience is so different to the American experience, to the British experience, to anything that I've ever seen portrayed in culture. Um, because, and, and even, I mean, I can't say much for the mainland Australian experience, but my experience is very specifically Tasmanian. We only have one university. Uh, it has three campuses across the state, but there's none of this sense of people having a choice. I mean, obviously, you do have a choice, and loads of people that I knew would leave. You leave Tasmania, you can move around Australia, you can go off to university. But we didn't have that sense that I get the impression from American books, TV, let's face it, that idea that leaving university was something you needed to do that like getting into the right university all that sort of thing I mean yes there are people who go for a really specific university experience but travel isn't just automatically assumed most of the people I knew chose university out of convenience and if they did go to the mainland for a different university it was because that was a state they wanted to travel to or they did it halfway through their university um the live-in university experience is absolutely there and many people do it. I didn't do it. But again, it's a convenience thing. That idea of people living on campus and that is the default university experience, absolutely not an Australian thing at all. Uh, the facilities are there for people who need it. But again, an awful lot of the people that I knew when I was going to university, that even if they came from another state, they might do that for one year and then they were in a share house. So I'm sure but my university experience is different to that of most of my friends, largely because I kind of accidentally fell into a relationship when I was 18. Uh, and so I never did the share house thing. You know, I was living at home and then I was living with my boyfriend and that was it. And eventually I married him. Um, but all my friends were in share houses, big, messy, sprawling, 
houses full of people who wouldn't always have chosen to be friends. You'd have pockets of friendship. You'd have pockets of, you know, um, bedroom adjacent colleagues. <laughs> and the university section here in Tasmania, which is currently in Hobart, which currently having a major shakeup. Uh, we have this weird situation where the one university campus is surrounded by suburbs that are pretty ritzy. They're quite high end as suburbs go. And so we'd have the like the shitty student accommodation side by side with the mansions. Like most of the mansion type houses in um, the, the southern Tasmania are in Sandy Bay. They're in that sort of area. Uh, and so a lot of my friends, their falling down share houses were actually converted mansions. Um, I still remember Nanawian, which is a share house, uh, various friends of mine at various times, which was like a floor of a, an old mansion. You could only, it was all sealed off. So you could only get to theirs, which was the, the first, the first floor up off the ground. You could only get to it via a really dodgy fire escape. Um, yeah, so things like that, those experiences, even though I did not live that particular experience myself, um, that's where, that's where my social life was, you know? So, and how I got the idea from Villatoni University, my family and I were visiting, uh, Melbourne. We were staying in a little unit there when our kids were little. And it happened to be in an area that was a university district. I don't know which university. There are loads in Melbourne. And there was something about just that area. There was a shopping street. There were little terrace houses, which is a thing we don't have that much in Tasmania, but they have them a lot in Melbourne. Um, there, and there was, there was a cemetery and there was a bit of university sort of – anyway – there might not even have been a university, honestly, at that end, but that was where I started imagining my Belladonna University. Um, so it was one of those little Melbourne suburbs with little squished together uh, squares where people lived. And it all just kind of fell into my head. Now, in order for something to fall into my head, obviously, as I've explained, there's a lot of backstory cultural stash floating around. I'd been thinking about magical universities. I'd been thinking about how an Australian magical university was going to be a very different story <clears throat> to one written by American uh, authors or UK authors, you know. Um, and there was a little bit of Harry Potter back there, largely because of those Harry Potter university stories, um, and most of which are either set in the UK or occasionally set in America, but many of which are written by American authors. So you'd had a lot of different assumptions about, um, yeah, assumptions about university traditions going back and forth. And I just was thinking about, you know, um, the, the share house experience, the, you know, having friends who were in a band. I don't think I ever had friends that were in a band, but, you know, friends who were friends who were in a band. Uh, all those little things came together. And it was that idea of a magical university stories where it's not really about university. I always feel guilty writing, writing those stories when I'm like, 
when did I last actually mention the university and have they gone to class at any point in this? But the point of those stories was never about the classes, um, though I did have the occasional fun with, with, with that. It wasn't about the subjects. Uh, I always had to go and look back, look back up the chapter that um, was about um, uh, the chapter in which they all said what they studied at the Russian University. So that was the other thing. There are a few other elements that came together with, with Belden University. One was I didn't – I wanted a world where magic was seen as the default but not one where it was hidden. So that got rid of the whole um, Hogwarts aspect straight away. So – and that – because often with magical stories, it's the magic that's special and I wanted the magic to not be special. And but I'm also always really interested in that idea of how if it's a magical default world, how do people who don't have magic, if you assume that they're not like treated like, you know, peasants, then how do you navigate that? And the university was a way to do that because universities always have layers of assumptions and bias and privilege. Um, you know, try talking to any science student however long it is since they've graduated about what it's like to be an art student and look at the like gleam in their eyes. Like there's people make assumptions, people make assumptions about all sorts of things, depending on what type of degree you're doing, uh, what kind of interests you have, who you're friends with. Yeah. But also the something else that I saw over the years, because it's a long time since I finished up at university was the university experience kind of disappearing. And I think that's happened in a lot of places. But I know in Tasmania, once compulsory student unionism disappeared, a lot of the societies and the, the, the bar and aspects of university life that you took for granted that were part of it just sort of trickled away. And it's really interesting. Literally this last week, my, my kid, my oldest son, started university. Um, he hasn't had a class on the main campus yet because most classes are not on the main campus. They're in the process of transitioning university away from the, ma the main campus and into buildings in town um, so that eventually they can sell off the old campus and make a ton of money. Uh, but yeah, so it's a, it's a weird transitional state. So yeah, universities are complicated and there's lots of interesting stories to be had around them, around what it's like to be at that stage in your life which aren't necessarily about just the sitting in lectures and doing the essays, though it is very important that you do your, your assignments. I'm going to be repeating that a lot over the next year because I got a kid doing an arts degree for the first time. It's going to be a lot of work. Oh, and I should also talk about elements that went into Bell uh, University. Um, yeah, I, I. the other aspect was the fandom. I wanted characters who were geeks and I've always loved creating fake culture, whether it's uh, imaginary sports, uh, TV shows, books, things that characters are really into. And I really went to town on that with Bella Donahue uh, because I wanted the characters to be geeky because all my friends were geeky uh, at, at, you know, I was part of a medieval recreationist group. Uh, at university, that's how I met my husband. 
that is the level of geekiness, you know. Um, so I kind of wanted that, even though the, the characters were in a band, but I wanted it to be a geeky band. Um, I think I was really into the double clicks and things like that at the time. The idea of um, a band that, which when I started seemed much less common a thing as well, but like it's been a long time since I started writing the developed on new stories. So yeah, creating stuff for them to be into. I was often finding myself in a bit of a tangle. Like, is this something people can be geeky about? The answer is almost always yes. Um, but yeah, so I loved coming up with all of those, those different like TV shows for them to be obsessed by. It was a, the fact that it's an AU of our real world, even though it feels like our real world culturally. So I threw in a few things like um, even the fact that Pride and Prejudice wasn't published in this world. It was First Impressions. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd occasionally get hit by the the paradox of mostly magic, some things not being magic, and having to just stop and think, how do things work? Like in the recent book, which will be out later this year, um, where a lot of the characters were left university, I had to think about things like, what does the government look like in this world? And how does magic fit into it? And all that sort of stuff. What does a government job look like <laughs> uh, in this in this reality? Um, yeah, so there's been a lot of world building on the fly. I started writing songs. Uh, the new book is full of, I've actually written the songs which I was, was not going to do. I did a few here and there, but I didn't have a lot of confidence. But I really got into songwriting over the last few months. Um, yeah, anyway, that has been me rambling. I could probably keep going for hours. If somebody was asking more specific questions, I could unpack a lot more of the influences and the ideas. But basically, I had those ideas sitting around. Oh, okay, just to finish up uh, this one question... <laughs> The practical side of it is I had all these ideas for Belladonna University. Uh, I kind of, I knew that I wanted to do the chapters uh, in like alternating all the character perspectives. I wanted to bring in like that the, because the characters had a geeky way of looking at the world, particularly Hebe, um, then some of the chapters and the ideas would be based around like fanfic tropes and that sort of thing. Um, I kind of had that idea, but I didn't have a reason to write it. And then I was asked to write a piece for the review of Australian fiction, which was a really interesting publication at the time. Basically it was a magazine or a journal that would publish, I think two pieces of fiction per issue one by an established author, one by a very new author. And they they published all kinds of different genres, including science fiction and fantasy, which is always, it's always a little bit suspicious when somebody's doing general fiction and they're including science fiction and fantasy. Like, I'm not used to that. I was, I came up in the 90s. We're used to being in a, a little corner on our own and people being terrible to us and throwing stones. Anyway. So, and I'd had this idea and I wanted an excuse to write it. I knew it was going to be longer than an ordinary short story. Uh, and when I was given this opportunity to just write something of any length I wanted and it would be published, I'm like, right, you say you're open to science fiction and fantasy. Let's find out how far we can take that. 
and I wrote the most like geeky insular in you know inside joke uh, fantasy story I could imagine and they published it um, and then when I was thinking about this patron and how I was going to shift things after I finished Musketeer Space I thought about this story which I think I was writing at the time but I thought about what I wanted to be doing with this Patreon and how I wanted to be doing serial fiction um, of like short stories and novelettes and novellas which are the length that I love to write in I wanted to write series um, and I was thinking about what I wanted to write the indulgent stories of my heart and and this was one of them and I was like oh I could put that one on the podcast and then I can start writing sequels so sometimes when it's putting together ideas for work the end result like the the practical thing of like how is this going to get published who's the audience going to be can affect that too like if I hadn't been doing that patron if I'd if I'd kept my agent my you know one of my agents over the years uh, I might have been writing these as novels to pitch to a publisher but because I was doing it myself for patron I was like I can do stories of indeterminate length and string them together and then I'll do a collection at some point it'll be fine and you know what it was uh, having said that if Belladonna You was a series of novels I'd probably be making so much more money as an indie publisher uh, but it's fine you know <laughs> You do what you do. I love how these stories have come out. It's been really fun. I've really enjoyed getting to write, as I said, the indeterminate length stories. There's still one story that none of you have read. Um, and I'm really excited to share it with you. And the series will be done in that the third volume will be the end for now. Having said that, if ever a series was designed to have a 10 years later reunion, it is this one. I kind of think I will be doing something like that as opposed to continuing where I'm at. I kind of want to leave the characters to do their own thing for a while and then come back to them at some point. Uh, apart from anything else, there's a few series that I started writing a while ago that I'm feeling I've aged out of. Um the other one that's sitting there that people often ask about and I just don't know if I can keep doing is the Café La Femme books because yeah Tabitha's a lot younger than me and I don't know if I want to age her up and I don't know if I can write those so there's a few like that Belladonna You definitely feels like one where Writing it now, it just, I just, I'm turning 45 this year. <laughs> I might be done writing about uni students for a while. I'm okay with that. I want to write about, you know, people who are a bit more battered and have been around the block longer. But I very much someday really want to write the Belladonna U reunion tour. I love the world that I created and the ideas and I'd like to go back to that. But I think it needs, it needs a bit of space. But I am excited to share the last book with people. Um, I didn't know what format the last story was going to take for a really long time. And <clears throat> it ended up being an album and the promotion of an album. And, yeah, making it more about the music, which I'm really pleased by. Because the last story, which many of you have 
listened to here on the podcast, it, it, it did draw a lot of lines under the university stuff. The whole last book really has, has very little to do with the university at all. But that's life, isn't it? Okay. Um, I've been talking for a really long time on those questions. I hope you feel like you've got your, um, your money's worth, girl. <laughs> All right, I'm going to continue and try not to ramble quite so much. Jemima asked, how do you find the time for the sheer amount of content you produce? I am in awe. That's lovely, Jemima. Um, I don't. My brain is always full of more stories that I want to write and I don't have time to write. I grab the time in small pieces. My day job uh, sucks up a lot of time. Um, it's steady as you go. I do it in small pieces. The podcast structure helped a lot because sometimes, you know, it's like, got to write a chapter for the new thing. Um, yeah. I, I really love my stories. I want to keep doing them. And so I, I make the time. But the time is not, it doesn't come to me in sensible chunks. My my current work rate is for new fiction is around 15,000 words a month, which is sustainable. Uh, having said that, I only got to 10,000 so far this month. There's only a few days left. So I just don't think I'm going to uh, churn out and hit my target Last year was the most successful writing year I've had in a really long time. And part of that was because I figured out my highs and my lows and how to um, write more and less and juggle my projects. Partly it was because I have finally accepted in my heart that focusing on one thing at a time is an efficient way to write, Tansy. I haven't accepted it. But it is a true fact. It's a really annoying fact. Uh, yeah, I, I, every month I like, these are the things I'm working on. These are the things I want to do. And I managed to do about 75% of what I actually want to do. But because my, my ambitions are high, then failing to meet my ambitions still makes me a reasonably productive author. Um, and I love it. You know, that's the best thing about publishing my own stuff. I don't have to work on projects that I'm not in love with. Um, sometimes they feel more like work than others, which is normally because I've set a deadline for myself and I don't like being told what to do even by me. But even then, like if I'm procrastinating on a project I should be doing, you better believe I'm being very productive on the project I shouldn't be doing. And hey, that one's, that one's got a place too. Uh, I trick myself and I game myself quite thoroughly. And I'm excited now that I have a much better working space to see how that changes. I think it's actually going to make my day job work more productive and efficient. And that will give me more time because my day job is like by the hour. Um... I can make those hours a day last a lot longer if I'm like getting distracted, taking breaks. Oh, don't count that. Okay. Uh, so my, th you know, if I'm doing three hours a day of the day job, sometimes that can take a lot longer than three hours if you're being slack about it. But I think if I'm more efficient about it, then I have a larger chunk of the day to work on my writing and publishing. And I'm excited about that. Okay. Probably connected to this, Jemima also asks, how do you keep the momentum up? 
Do you ever have slump days where no amount of planning or pushing gets the words out? I need to know I'm not alone here. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm terrible. My work ethic is uh, committed but unrealistic at times. And yeah, I will have days like I just, I can't get the words out. Absolutely. The good and bad thing is there's usually something I can work on. Like yesterday uh, was Saturday. I had to do a big copy editing, pro copy editing thing. That was one of the things I had to do. Uh, I got to the end of it, realized I'd been basing some of my copy edits on a false premise, went back and did them all again. I was kind of wrecked by then, but I wanted to make some fiction progress. Like I said, I'm still got 4,000 words I've got to write this month. If I'm going to hit my target, I'm not going to hit my target. Um, but what I needed to be doing probably was working on a new chapter of Knives and Nightblooms which is officially the fiction project now breathing down my neck because I'm going to start podcasting it next week. Um, and I just didn't want to do that. My brain didn't want to do it. I wasn't even in a place where I could do new words, at which point I'll turn to, okay, if I can't write new words, I'll edit. The sensible thing would have been <clears throat> to go back and edit chapter two of Knives and Night Blooms, which gets me in the right headspace, and then I can... Um, but I didn't do that either. So I went to Time of the Cat, which is my just for fun project that I am completely in love with. I'm going to be kickstarting later this year. It's a time travel comedy with cats and end notes. Uh, and again, it's an academic book in some ways. Uh, it ties into some of my university experience, uh, but it's about time travelers and it's so silly and I love it. And it also needs editing. So I was editing some chapters of that. So I'm doing something, you know, there's always something I can work on at some level. If I'm not in a frame of mind when I can write new words, I can do something else on my many list. My big productivity thing that has actually worked for me the last couple of years is my, li again, lists. I'm all about lists. I have a list of things that I need to get done through the year. I have a work, more of a work schedule than ever before. I used to be a bit more ad hoc about what I was doing and when, but because I'm liking to plan my publishing projects up front. So every, I've got list, all these things I've got to do, things I've got to do in particular months, preparing for particular releases. Uh, and then every month I have my to-do list and it's a pretty massive to-do list. Um, it works out at being <clears throat> somewhere between 100 and 150 items. Um, if I'm being really sensible with myself, it should average four things a day. And those things include, I also put in my, for instance, every hour I have to work in my day job. That's in my to-do list. So if, for instance, I have more public holidays in a year in a month than usual I have fewer hours for my day job and that means I can fit in other things that aren't my day job um, not including the day job was a problem because I was trying to carry on my writing and publishing schedule as if I didn't have several hours a day commitment so yeah this, this is what's working for me right now I've even started bringing in household stuff which I've gone back and forth on whether I include that. 
but I needed to for my big cleaning project. So, so yeah, then I'm trying to, and that's how I can feel I'm getting progress. You know, if I can tick off four or five things off my list, um, which might be, <laughs> it might be three hours of the day job. It might be, uh, that's three things. Uh, a thing might be writing a thousand words of my monthly target of 15,000, uh, except in Camp Nano months when it's 30,000. But anyway, um, an item might be sending out a newsletter. It might be finishing a chapter, might be editing a chapter. So yeah, I have my big monthly list and then I'm refining that through the month and I'm ticking things off. And if I haven't got it to a stage where I can achieve it with four things a month, four things a day by the beginning of the month I definitely should have that by the end of the month or I'm pulling things off my list and moving it to the next month which is allowed uh, because my list but that's my main productivity thing but because I have everything on there it means I can pivot when my brain is telling me that the words aren't coming because you know what if the words aren't coming it's not productive to sit there and type five words of fiction like there's no point to that I write best when I do have momentum up that's why last year I did so well when I was doing the Camp Nanaremo, which was doing April and July, writing 30,000 words and trying to do it on a specific project. Uh, that worked amazingly. But the reason it worked amazingly is because I'm not doing that every month. I couldn't do that every month. It would kill me. Uh, in the same way that I, if I do full Nanaremo in November, flat out writing fiction, I'm not going to write anything in December. Uh, but also I have to plan to not do of, too many other tasks in November. So, yeah, I've figured out how my brain works. It works for me. I don't, I've, I've tried more complex productivity things and it really doesn't work for me. Um, it's all about my list, my one list every month. Sometimes I do sub lists for a week, especially early on in the month to keep track of like, well, what are the things on this list that are time specific or that I really need to get done up front? Um, a section, a subsection of the list is an actual calendar with due dates. So some of those things and our appointments, you know, putting doctor's appointments in, you never get around to making the right doctor's appointments unless you add them to the list. <sighs> okay. I am nearly at an hour and I have one more question, which is from Jay. Speaking of questions, how... Where and how do you come up with character names? When do names get locked in? And how much of an effect does that have on plot slash relationships slash world building? That's such an interesting question. Um, I'm really quite... Um, names are really important to me. I can't start writing until the name is right. Uh, I, I specifically remember... The creature court. I had all the ideas. I had the plan. I was ready to go. And until I found Velody's name, I could not progress on that novel. Um, the first one. And it took me ages to find it because I almost had it. It was like, it, it was literally, I know it starts with V. I know it has this sort of feel. There aren't any real names which fit, fit it. And so I was literally taking every name I could think of and adding a V to it instead and saying, and I ended up with Velody, uh, which is still one of my favorite names. And I'm really glad that I did it. Uh, I always joke that because I 
did so much writing before my kids were born. Um, it was a real problem because I'd run out of all my favourite names before they arrived. Didn't turn out to be a problem in the end anyway. Uh, my, my son's chosen his own name and he's very happy about it. Um, yeah, but I, more of a problem for me is actually supporting character names because I have a lot of clearly favourite names that I keep recycling. Started recently trying to put a spreadsheet together when I realised how many, like, background basils I had. <laughs> that sort of thing. I'm like, ooh. I remember being really uh, stressed at one point. There's a project that I wanted to write forever. I wrote like a draft, but I never got back to it. My friend is always hassling me to write it. Uh, it's kind of a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, but with necromancers. It's it's great. Uh, because I focused around uh, the main character of Rosaline, she was my protagonist. Now, in Romeo and Juliet, Rosaline has a younger sister called Livia. And that like really bugged me because I was like, because I needed the sister to be in the book. And I was like, can I have a character called Livia? Because obviously I have Livia Day as a pen name and that's almost not relevant because there are plenty of people reading Tansy books who don't know about that. But also I was like, but I've, I've done a Livilla and also at some point I'm going to write a novel about actual Livia, right? And so I can't have a different Livia floating around. Like I actually worried about this. And now I'm looking back at the thing. Oh, you know, it doesn't matter. You can call, you have a Livia in every book. Why not? People don't mind. Uh, they, they, so they don't seem to have noticed all the basils. So yeah, finding the right name is really important to me. It helps to move the story forward. helps me to figure out. And yeah, I do use it for um, world building and aspects like that too. A little bit, with relationships, I think, because the problem is you you haven't come up with the right name, but if you're doing an ensemble, you need to find all the names. So Knives and Nightblooms, for instance, which is a project that has been sitting around at my desk for a long time with a first chapter sitting there, um, character notes. I've got a shape of the storyline, um, but I have changed the names quite a few times before it came to actually writing it. So one of my main characters is Dio, um, he'd flicked back and forth with different names. Um, Icarus, I actually have an Icarus character, but it's Icarus, not Icarus. Doesn't mean I'm not going to hurl him into the sun at some point. Uh, one of the main female characters is called Calix. I, I always knew that was her name. Her daughter, I've gone back and forth. I think she was Neve for a while and now I'm going with Nimue and I don't know if it's going to be something else. Um, I have a Valeria. There's a character called Mardi Marenzi, and I'm like, why does she have a surname, Tansy? Nobody else has a surname. Why does this character? But she needs to be, she's not just Mardi, she's Mardi Marenzi. That's important. I haven't figured out yet how surnames work in this world. Uh, I'm, I definitely have to because I've written 10 chapters and it's going to be a podcast. So yeah, figuring out how names work, um, titles, how they work as well. Uh, it's all it, it it's all part of the thing, and I usually use the figuring out names as part of the pre process before I properly start writing. So I'll have a page of notes. I'll put my ideas there, and um, and I'll work on it. And when I have the names right, then I can tell the story. 
the teacup magic book is because that started with the name because my plan for the teacup magic book I wasn't going to write name story at all I had in my head the idea of writing these like historical romances with with magic um, obviously I'm not going to write straight historical romance because that's another genre Tansy you're not going to do that um, but the idea was the characters were all based around the muses so and I'm still going to do this at some point like this is my plan it just went in a different direction so like I've always liked a lot of the muse names you've got like Thalia you've got Cleo great ones and so I had this idea of these nine muses they're all sisters but it's like a Jane austen you know, Regency thing. Um, but also kind of like, oh, um, Stephanie Lawrence or Courtney Milan, those, all those romance dynasties, your Bridgerton type thing, you know, romance dynasties where every character gets their own book. That was my plan. And they're muses. And, and then... Um, so I had that in my mind and I was playing and then a, a pre-made cover came up, which I fell in love with, which became the cover for Tea and Sympathetic Magic. And I even came up with the title. I'm like, yes, I'm going to write a story. It's going to be called Tea and Sympathetic Magic. It's going to have that cover. I'll do it for Patreon. It'll be fine. And I went back and looked at my muses and Mnemosyne in Greek myth is the mother of the muses. And that idea was much more interesting to me. And so when I came, so I started properly world building the teacup aisles, uh, Neem, the fact that she was a seaborn that came up, the, the family of magical women, and all the names started falling into place because I've been preparing for this my whole life, all my Regency and Victorian reading, and it's all there, and it just kept coming up, the names of the islands, um, names of some of the characters and all kind of and whenever I stopped to reach for something I'd add more Greek myth now it's not just Greek myth obviously I put a little bit of Roman in there too because so we have Henry Jupiter for instance um, spoiler which wife he chooses because Juno is one of the group <laughs> um, yeah so I kept throwing in Greek myth stuff but then other elements as well. I mean, Liesl isn't a Greek myth name. I'm not sure where she came from. It's just like, I needed a name for somebody pretty. That was how she started as a character. Obviously, she became much more interesting than just the pretty one. Um, but she only had a few lines in the first few stories. Um, oh, and the fact that she was of Sandwich. Always like the whole Earl of Sandwich thing always just is something that I find deeply hilarious. So I had to have an Isle of Sandwich so I could have an Earl of Sandwich and then he had to have a daughter. And suddenly we've got Liesl with all her family uh, dramas and stresses and I love her so much. <laughs> so, yeah, um, throwing Greek myth at Regency conventions and seeing what happens. It's so much fun coming up with all those names. Queen Ord. Um, I don't remember if she was going to be an Audrey, but then I was writing girl reporter at the time and there's a ship in that called Audrey or was she always awed see I don't even remember but the names for the teacup aisles have been great fun and yeah when in doubt I've always pulled in a bit of extra geek myth to tie them together um 
And I only recently discovered in one of the later books that actually they do have some Greek gods running around, or at least technically around as gods, which explains why they're all named after Greek myth characters, I guess. I haven't quite nailed down all that world building. Um, yeah, but coming up with all those names is a big part of planning the stories. Uh, it's it's very, very fun. Um, I'm excited about the new one, which I'm going to be writing in April, uh, which is all, it's Metis, uh, who again, like Metis is a Greek myth name. Uh, I brought her in. She's a kind of unsung heroine from Greek myth. You don't hear much about her. She's the mother of Athena. Oh, the other key thing was that originally in my head, at some point I was going to stop writing the teacup magic books or not stop, but like end that series. And the sequel series would be that series. I always had in the back of my head about the muses. I still have that in mind to write, but I decided not very far into the teacup magic novellas that I'm not going to give Neem nine kids because what the hell, apart from anything else, when, it turns out that Neem has a lot of really strong opinions about what her marriage is going to look like. She wants it to be a marriage of equals with Thornberry. She wants um, she wants kind of to be in on his work to a point. Like, they have adventures together. I want them to keep having adventures together. I feel like if they have nine children at home, there is no way they're going to have adventures together. Um, but also, yeah, so I was like, oh, what have I done here? Have I doomed this character? Like, I just... Look, no offence to people who have big families, but I just feel that if a woman is going to have nine children, then it's a Joe's boys situation, you know? It means that's their life forever. And again, that's fine, but it didn't feel like a neem life choice. Then, of course, I looked back and was like, uh-huh-huh, okay. The muses don't have to be sisters. Not all of them even have to be women which is another thing I was thinking about. I'm like, uh, are they all going to be cis women? And also, are they all going to be women at all? Um, there's that whole thing about is the muse's entire job to like make somebody else's dreams come true, in which case is that going to be depressing for nine books? still don't know what the muse series is going to look like, but I know that they're going to be cousins. So I figured out which of the muses... Um, and if you get to the end of the Juno book, there's going to be a bit of a hint about that too. But yeah, pretty much I'm going to spread the muses between the characters of the teacup magic. Um, and so we're going to end up hopefully with all nine. But, you know, I haven't 100% decided how many kids Henry and Juno are going to have versus how many kids... Neem and Thornberry are going to have. I feel like Metis is going to end up with one, but I don't know under what circumstances she is. I guess I'm going to find that out in April. Um, and yes, so Juno is pregnant in her book. Uh, obviously, her pregnancy was, was announced back in Spellcracker's Honeymoon. Um, but in Have Spirit Will Duchess, I wanted a pregnant, pregnant heroine. I feel like she is much more committed to long-term motherhood than names so she's probably going to get like more of the kids um and there's a yeah there's there's definitely some hint of that in that book okay naming yeah i'm just trying to think if there are other any other good examples of the names being locked in and how that changes things 
Musketeer Space was, I guess, one where the names were all provided for me, but I made some changes, some of which, some which were to regender the characters. Uh, sometimes I didn't worry about that, but sometimes I wanted to kind of add extra gender elements. Uh, and sometimes it was to add a bit of less obvious, not just whiteness, but really specific cultural reverence. So I kind of wanted to throw in some other surnames, um, make it a nice, big, melting pot, diverse future kind of thing. But yeah, so finding, I mean, Milady to Milord, obviously, that's a really easy one, though, <clears throat> though not hugely easy because actually changing Milady's name, which is so iconic, felt a little bit wrong. There's a lot of Anne's in uh, in the original Three Musketeers. Milady is an Anne, so Milord became Auden, or at least that was his, um, uh, you know, that was one of his fake names. Uh, and Anne of Austria became Alec of, of Oster, uh, which, because of how I wrote it, ended up being like, it's like a whole planet that's like Australia, right? That was, that was my head. Um, Constance became Conrad. So, yeah, having Dana D'Artagnan, that was important to me, her first name. She's definitely named after Dana from Robotech. Uh, if you've uh, watched Robotech all the way through to, like, the the next generation, there's Dana with her mecha. That was, that was like, the pers- kind of the personality I was going for with less of the the enforced girliness, but definitely the, the tough military leader with anger issues. Um... The fact that Porthos is sometimes Pole was important. Uh, Aramis's secret name that's been left behind was kind of important. Yeah, so the names, because I was having to choose which names I kept as well as which names I created. Lala Louise instead of King Louis. I don't know why I had to put a Lala in there, but just Louise... Um, uh, yeah, it, it, I just wanted that extra something and that worked. I, I have a friend called Louise who always jokes that she has two middle names because Louise is one of the most common middle names in Australia of our generation. So, yeah, so I, I had fun with it. And it was very much about key. It, it's a, like a sculpture, you know, the, the bits that you cut away are the bits that aren't the picture you want to make. So with Musketeer Space, I was changing and cutting away names and also choosing to keep names. Um, and that, yeah, that that was was really quite fun for me. It was a fun part of the world building that came with that story. And we're into an hour and ten minutes for literally like five questions. So I feel like it's time to wound up. But thank you so much, those of you who asked questions. I will do this again. Uh, I'm just loving sitting at my nice table with my microphone and my room isn't choked with dust so I can breathe. It's so much easier to breathe while podcasting. Huh, who knew? All right, thank you very much for joining me and next week I'll get to introduce you to a whole host of new characters with of Knives and Night Blooms, a river, magical river-based road trip with assassins. So thanks for listening to Sheep Might Fly. This podcast was recorded on Palawa land. 
I acknowledge and pay respect to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people as the continuing custodians of Lutruita, Tasmania. Sheep Might Fly is produced and edited by Andrew Finch. You can sign up to my author newsletter for updates. Follow me on Twitter at TansyRR, and if you like this podcast, consider supporting me at Patreon, where you can receive all kinds of bonus rewards, early ebooks, and exclusive stories for a small monthly pledge. In fact, there's a whole brand new reward for my patrons this week, which is um, it's a Discord called the Lamplighters Guild set up by a group of fabulous Gaslamp fantasy authors and historical fantasy authors, including me. Well, I was very glad to be invited to join. Um, all of my patrons at $3 or higher uh, in the tiers can join this Discord and chat to other authors and readers of historical fantasy. So this is really exciting. I managed to get my patron and my discord connected which i needed to do in order to invite people um having finally after hours and hours of agony and reconnecting and disconnecting and technical advice and then doing everything backwards with black magic finally got it to work as it turned out a lot of my patrons at the three dollar level or above already had patron patreon and discord connected So they all just suddenly got flung into this Discord. I hadn't got around to telling them it was a thing. Um, So it was a surprise. I'm sorry about that. I did not have faith in the technology to announce it before I did it. Um, But I'd love to have some of you over there. You can ask me questions anytime you like that way. Uh, Not that you couldn't already in Patreon. But um, yeah, so that's a fun extra bonus content if you sign up at the backstage pass, uh, Patreon reward level, or anything higher than that. Uh, I should point out those at the Manticore special $15 a month level will be getting House Perilous in paperback next month, um, a month ahead of that being released for everybody else. That's the second Sparks and Filters novella. Uh, yeah. And there's lots of exciting rewards. So think about Patreon. And otherwise, I'll see you next week for my lovely new fiction serial in my lovely library. See you then.